Section 57 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by C. Sinclair. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals, by Charles Lewis Cornish. Editor. The Hippopotamus, by F. C. Sellis. Two species of the hippopotamus family exist on the earth today, both of which are inhabitants of Africa and are not found in any other country. But the remains of many extinct forms of this genus, which have been discovered in various parts of Europe and Asia, show that in the Pleistocene and Pliocene times these strange and uncouth animals must have been widely distributed throughout the greater part of the Old World. The fossil remains of the large form of hippopotamus which once frequented the lakes and rivers of England and Western Europe, cannot be distinguished from the bones of the common African species of today, which latter is possibly the only animal in the world which has undergone no change in form or structure since the prehistoric savages of the Thames Valley threw stone-headed spears at their enemies. The common hippopotamus, though it has long been banished from the lower Nile, and has more recently been practically exterminated in the British colonies south of the Limpopo, was once an inhabitant of every lake and river throughout the entire African continent, from the delta of the Nile to the neighborhood of Cape Town. Now it is not found below Khartoum on the Nile. But in southern Africa, a few hippopotamuses are said still to exist in the lower reaches of the Orange River. When Van Rybeck first landed at the Cape in 1652, he found some of these animals in the swamp now occupied by Church Square in the center of Cape Town and the last in the district was only killed in the Berg River, about 70 miles north of that city, as recently as 1874. This animal, which had been protected for some years, was at last shot, as it had become very savage, and was in the habit of attacking anyone who approached it. In my own experience, I have met with the hippopotamus in all the large rivers of Africa where I have traveled, such as the Zambezi, Kafukwe, Chobi, Sabi, Limpopo, and Asutu, and also in most of the many large streams which take their rise on the plateau of Matabi land and Mashona land, and flow north, south, and east into the Zambezi, the Limpopo, or the Sabi. I have also seen them in the sea at the mouth of the Quilomani River, and have heard from natives that they will travel by sea from the mouth of one river to another. By permission of Eric Carl Hagenbach, Hamburg, a three-year-old hippopotamus, in this specimen, the great lower tusks are not yet developed. Hippopotamuses live either in families of a few individuals or in herds that may number from 20 to 30 members. Old bulls are often met with alone, and cows when about to calve will sometimes leave their companions and live for a time in seclusion, returning, however, to the herd soon after the birth of their calves. Although, owing to the shortness of its legs, a hippopotamus bull does not stand very high at the shoulder, about four feet eight inches being the average height, yet its body is of enormous bulk. A male which died some years ago in the zoological gardens of London measured twelve feet in length from the nose to the root of the tail and weighed four tons, and these dimensions are probably often exceeded in a wild state. Photo by J.W. McClellan, Highbury, Hippopotamus Drinking, the enormous breadth of the muzzle, as well as the small nostrils, which can be closed at will, are clearly displayed in this posture. The huge mouth of the hippopotamus, sea-colored plate, which the animal is fond of opening to its widest extent, 
is furnished with very large canine incisor teeth, which are kept sharp by constantly grinding one against another, and thus enable their possessor to rapidly cut down great quantities of coarse grass and reeds upon which these animals exclusively feed when living in uninhabited countries. When, however, their haunts are in the neighborhood of native villages, they often commit great havoc in the cornfields of the inhabitants, trampling down as much as they eat, and it was their fondness for sugarcane which brought about the destruction of the last herd of hippopotamuses surviving in Natal. The lower canine teeth, or tusks, of the hippopotamus grow to a great size, and in bulls may weigh from four pounds to seven pounds each. They are curved in shape, and when extracted from the jaw form a complete half-circle, and have been known to measure upwards of thirty inches over the curve. In life, however, not more than a third of their length protrudes beyond the gums. During the daytime, hippopotamuses are seldom met with out of the water. They lie and doze all day long in the deep pools of the rivers they frequent, with only their eyes, ears, and nostrils above the surface, or else bask in the sun on the tail of a sandbank, looking like so many gigantic pigs with their bodies only partially submerged. Sometimes they will lie and sleep entirely out of water amongst reeds. I have seen them feeding in the reed beds of the great swamps of the Chobe just at sundown, but as a rule they do not leave the water until after dark. At night they often wander far afield, especially in the rainy season, in search of suitable food, and after having been fired at and frightened, I have known a herd of hippopotamuses to travel at least five and twenty miles along the course of a river during the ensuing night, in order to reach a larger and deeper pool than the one in which they had been molested. Photo by Lord Delamere, Northwick. Hippopotamuses bathing. A hippopotamus stays underwater for about two and a half minutes at a time, and then just shows part of its head above water while it draws a fresh breath. Although the hippopotamus is thoroughly at home in the hottest parts of Africa and appears to thrive in the tepid waters of all the rivers which flow through the malarious coast regions of the tropical portions of that continent, it is also found at a considerable altitude above the sea, and in quite small streams where the temperature of the water during the winter months cannot be many degrees above freezing point. I have personally met with hippopotamuses in the Manyami River, not far from the present town of Salisbury, in Mishonaland, country there has an altitude of about 5,000 feet above sea level, and the water was so cold on the last occasion on which I came across the animals in question, July 1887, that if a basin was left out during the night, ice quite an eighth of an inch in thickness would be formed over it before morning. There was, however, never any ice on the river itself. During the rainy season, when the grass and reeds are green and succulent, hippopotamuses become enormously fat especially in the higher and colder portions of their range, and retain a good deal of their fat right through the driest season of the year. Old bulls are usually very lean, but I have seen cows the greater part of whose carcass, after the skin had been stripped off, was covered with a layer of fat from one inch to two inches in thickness. The meat of these animals is dark red in color, and more like beef than pork. To my mind, that of a young animal is most excellent in flavor, and far preferable to that of a lean antelope. The fat, when prepared, is as good as the best lard, from which, indeed, it is hardly distinguishable. The skin of the hippopotamus is smooth and hairless, and an adult animal's quite one and a half inch in thickness on the upper parts of the body. Photo by J.W. McClellan, Highbury, A Hippopotamus Gaping 
The position of the animal displays the enormous capacity and likewise the powerful lower tusks. The shortness of the limbs is also well exhibited. By permission of Herr Karl Hagenbach, Hamburg. Baby hippopotamus, aged six months. The flesh of a young hippopotamus is said to have an excellent flavor. Natives often follow shooting expeditions in order to secure some of its meat. Hippopotamuses are said to be capable of remaining underwater for 10 or 12 minutes. Should, however, a herd of these animals be watched but not fired at from the bank of a river in which they are passing the day, they will all sink below the surface of the water as soon as they become aware of, and more or less alarmed by, the presence of the intruder. But each member of the herd will come up to breathe at intervals of from 1 to 2 minutes. I have seen hippopotamuses so tame and unsuspicious of danger that they allowed me, the first human being probably with any kind of hat or clothes on him that they had ever seen, to take up a position within fifty yards of them on the edge of the deep rock-bound pool in which they were resting without showing any signs of alarm. They simply stared at me in an inquisitive sort of way, raising their heads higher out of the water, constantly twitching their little rounded ears. It was not until a number of natives came up and began to talk loudly that they took alarm, and sinking out of sight, retreated to the farther end of the pool. I once took the length of time with my watch for more than an hour that a hippopotamus which I was trying to shoot remained underwater. This animal, a cow with a newborn calf, had made an attack upon one of my canoes. It first came up under the canoe, tilting one end of it into the air and almost filling it with water. Then it made a rush at the half-swamped craft and laying its huge head over it, pressed it down under the water and sank it. There were four natives in the canoe at the time of the attack, all of whom swam safely to an island in the river, the Zambezi. After the accident, which caused me a good deal of loss and inconvenience, I tried to shoot this unprovoked aggressor, but unsuccessfully, as the river was too broad to allow me to get anything but a long shot at her. The shortest time she remained underwater during the 70 minutes I was paying attention to her was 40 seconds, and the longest 4 minutes and 20 seconds, the usual time being from 2 to 2 and a half minutes. She always remained a long time under the water after having been fired at. The capsizing of canoes by these animals is quite a common occurrence on most African rivers, and the great pains the natives will take in certain districts to give these animals a wide berth seems to prove that they have good reason to dread them. Solitary bulls and cows with young calves are the most feared. Such animals will sometimes, I have been assured by the natives, tear out the side of a canoe with their teeth, and even crunch up some of its occupants whilst they are trying to save themselves by swimming. Sopopo, a chief of the Barotz tribe, who was deposed by his nephew Monowena in 1876, was said to have been attacked and killed by a hippopotamus whilst lying wounded amongst the reeds on the southern bank of the Zambezi but I cannot vouch for the truth of the story. Bull hippopotamuses must be rather quarrelsome, as I have shot several whose hides were deeply scored with wounds, no doubt inflicted by the tusks of their rivals. Once I killed a hippopotamus in a shallow lagoon amongst the swamps of the Chobe, whose enormously thick hide had been literally cut to pieces from head to tail. The entire body of this animal was covered with deep white scores, and we were unable to cut a single strambuck from its skin. We found on examination that this poor beast had been wounded by natives, and then in its distress most cruelly set upon by its fellows, and finally expelled from their society. It was in the last stage of emaciation, and a bullet through the brain must have been a welcome relief. 
On another occasion, a hippopotamus bull, which I had wounded in the nose, became so furious that it dived down and attacked one of its fellows, which had already been killed, and was lying dead at the bottom of the pool. Seizing this latter animal by the hind leg, it brought it to the surface of the water with such a furious rush that not only half the body of the dead animal it had attacked was exposed, but the whole of its own head and shoulders came above the water. A bullet through the brain killed it instantly, and it sank to the bottom of the pool, still holding its companion's hind leg fast in its jaws. Dental Operations on a Hippopotamus Number 1 This and the next two photographs probably constitute the most remarkable series of animal photographs ever seen. Number 1 shows a hippopotamus about to be trapped, preparatory to having its teeth attended to. When a hippopotamus is killed in the water, the carcass sinks to the bottom, and the cold water of the rivers of Mishonaland will not rise to the surface till six hours after death. In the warmer water of the lower Zambezi, a dead hippopotamus will come up in about half that time. When it rises, the carcass comes up like a submerged cork, with a rush, as it were, and then settles down, only a small piece of the side showing above the surface. As decomposition sets in, it becomes more and more swollen, and shows higher and higher above the water. When the body of a dead hippopotamus has been taken by the wind or current to the wrong side of a river, I have often climbed onto it and paddled it with a stout stick right across the river to a spot near our camp. A dead hippopotamus is not the easiest or pleasantest thing to sit on in deep water with crocodiles about, especially in a wind, as it is very much like sitting on a floating barrel, and unless the balance is exactly maintained, one is bound to roll off. Dental Operations on a Hippopotamus Number 2 This shows the process of filing one of the lower tusks. Dental Operations on a Hippopotamus Number 3 Sawing off one of the lower tusks. Although it is often necessary for an African traveler to shoot one or more of them in order to obtain a supply of meat for his native followers, there is not much sport attached to the killing of these animals. The modern small-bore rifles, with their low trajectory and great penetration, render their destruction very easy when they are encountered in small lakes or narrow rivers, though in larger sheets of water, where they must be approached and shot from rickety canoes, it is by no means a simple matter to kill hippopotamuses, especially after they have grown shy and wary through persecution. As these animals are almost invariably killed by Europeans in the daytime, and are therefore encountered in the water, they are usually shot through the brain as they raise their heads above the surface to breathe. By the natives, hippopotamuses are killed in various ways. They are sometimes attacked first with harpoons, to which long lines are attached, with a float at the end to mark the position of the wounded animal, and then followed up in canoes and finally speared to death. Sometimes they are caught in huge pitfalls, or killed by the fall of a spearhead fixed in a heavy block of wood, which is released from its position when a line attached to its weight and pegged across the hippopotamus's path a few inches above the ground is suddenly pulled by the feet of one of these animals striking against it. A friend of mine once had a horse killed under him by a similar trap set for buffaloes. His horse's feet struck the line attached to the heavily weighted spearhead and down it came, just missing his head and entering his horse's back close behind the saddle. Where the natives have guns, mostly old muzzle-loading weapons of large boar, they often shoot hippopotamuses at close quarters when they are feeding at night. The most destructive native method, however, of killing these monsters with which I am acquainted is one which used to be practiced by the natives of northern Mashonaland, 
namely fencing in a herd of these animals and starving them to death. As there is a very rapid fall in the country through which all the rivers run to the Zambezi from the northern slope of Mashonaland, these streams consist of a series of deep, still pools, so called sea cow holes by the old hunters, from a hundred yards to more than a mile in length, connected with one another by shallow, swift-flowing water, often running in several small streams over the bed of the river. A herd of hippopotamuses having been found resting for the day in one of the smaller pools, all the natives in the district, men, women, and children, would collect and build strong fences across the shallows at each end. At night, large fires would be kept blazing all round the pool, and tom-toms beaten incessantly in order to prevent the imprisoned animals from escaping. Day after day, the fences would be strengthened, and platforms sometimes built to command naturally weak places. In these points of vantage, the poor animals were speared when, in their desperation, they tried to leave the pool. Gradually, the whole herd would be speared or starved to death. Photo by York and Son, Notting Hill, Female Hippopotamuses, exhibits a very characteristic attitude of the animal. Photo by York and Son, Notting Hill, a hippopotamus family, father, mother, and young. Hippopotamuses are very sociable animals and are often to be met with in large herds. Once in August 1880, I came upon a native tribe engaged in starving to death a herd of hippopotamuses in a pool of the Umniati River in northern Mashonaland. When I came upon the scene, there were ten hippopotamuses still alive in the pool. Eight of these appeared to be standing on a sandbank in the middle of the river, as more than half of their bodies were above the water. They were all huddled up together, their heads resting on each other's bodies. Two others were swimming about each with a heavily shafted assegai sticking in its back. Besides these ten still living hippopotamuses, two dead ones were being cut up on the side of the pool, and many more must have already been killed, as all around the pool festoons of meat were hanging on poles to dry, and a large number of natives had been living for some time on nothing but hippopotamus meat. Altogether, I imagine that a herd of at least twenty animals must have been destroyed. Much as one must regret such a wholesale slaughter, it must be remembered that this great killing was the work of hungry savages, who at any rate utilized every scrap of the meat thus obtained, and much of the skin as well, for food. And such an incident is far less reprehensible, indeed stands on quite a different plane as regards moral guilt, to the wanton destruction of a large number of hippopotamuses in the Umzingwani River, within a few months of the conquest of Matabi land by the Chartered Company's forces in 1893. These animals have been protected for many years by Lobangula and his father Umziligazi before him, but no sooner were the Matabili conquered and their country thrown open to white men that certain unscrupulous persons destroyed all but a very few of these half-tame animals for the sake of the few paltry pieces of money their hides were worth. Photo by G.W. Wilson and Company, Limited, Aberdeen, Hippopotamus. The skin of a hippopotamus is often as much as an inch and a half in thickness on the upper parts of the body. Gradually, as the world grows older, more civilized, and to my way of thinking, less and less interesting, the range of the hippopotamus, like that of all other large animals, must become more and more circumscribed. But now that all Africa has been parceled out amongst the white races of Western Europe, if the indiscriminate killing of hippopotamuses by either white men or natives could be controlled, 
and the constant and cruel custom of firing at the heads of these animals from the decks of river steamers all over Africa be put a stop to. I believe that this most interesting animal, owing to the nature of its habitat and the vast extent of the rivers, swamps, and lakes in which it still exists in considerable numbers, will long outlive all other Pachydermatous animals. Hideous, uncouth, and unnecessary as the hippopotamus may seem when viewed from behind the bars of its den in a zoological garden, it is nevertheless true that when these animals have been banished from an African river by the progress of civilization, that river has lost one of its highest charms and greatest ornaments. The pygmy, or Liberian hippopotamus, is confirmed to Upper Guinea, and compared with its only existing relative is a very small animal, not standing more than two feet six inches in height measuring less than six feet in length. In weight, a full-grown specimen will scale about 400 pounds. But little is known of the habits of this rare animal, specimens of which, I believe, have never been obtained, except by the German naturalists in Burkhofer and Jintink. When alive, the color of the skin of the pygmy hippopotamus is said to be of a greenish-black, changing on the underparts to yellowish-green. The surface of the skin is very shiny, this species, unlike its giant relative, does not congregate in herds, nor pass its days in rivers or lakes, but lives in pairs in marshes or shady forests. It sleeps during the day and at night wanders over a great extent of country, eating grass, wild fruits, and the young shoots of trees. Its flesh is said to be very succulent and much esteemed by the natives. Photo by Yorkinson, Notting Hill, Male and Female Hippopotamuses a hippopotamus is almost inseparable from the water. It never goes further away than possible from a river or lake. A hippopotamus, apparently of the same species as that now found in Africa, formerly inhabited the Thames Valley. Great quantities of fossil remains of another species are also found in the island of Sicily. The bones found in England are mainly in the river gravel and brick earth of the south and midland districts of England. This seems to show that at the time when the animal existed, our rivers must have been open all the year, and not ice-bound, for it is certain that no hippopotamus could live in a river which froze in winter. Yet among the remains of these animals are also found those of quite arctic species like the muskox and the reindeer, together with those of the Saiga antelope, an inhabitant of the cold plateau of Tibet. The problem is, how could these creatures, one a dweller in warm rivers and the other inhabitants of cold arctic or subarctic regions, have existed together, apparently on the same area of ground? The answer, which does not seem to have occurred to naturalists who have discussed the question, seems to be plain enough. Anyone who knows the conditions of the great rift valleys of central Africa has the key to the solution of the puzzle. There is probably a very great difference in the vertical plane. Deep in the rift was probably a warm river, while above it may have been mountains from 10,000 to 20,000 feet high, with snow on the summits and glaciers in their valleys. On these cold and arctic heights, both the reindeer and the muskox would find congenial homes. Thousands of feet below, in the hot and narrow valley, the hippopotamus would revel in a warm and steaming climate. This is what actually occurs in the rift valleys of central Africa, where the hippopotamus swims in rivers that are at no great distance from the snow-covered and ice-capped mountains. End of section 57